Lord Jesus, we want today to hear from you so that when challenging moments and opposition comes, we'll know what to do. And so I pray today for people who are under the vice of difficulty and hardship. I pray, Father, for people who today have have disappointed hearts because even over the weekend they were bold and clear. They gave a good witness, but their family or friends mocked or made fun of them or just were simply silent. Lord, I pray for lonely spouses today who live in a marriage, but it often feels like a bit of persecution because the person they're married to doesn't know you. Pray for college students and high school students who, in the midst of what should be some of the best years of their life, have to make some of the most difficult choices about what's right and what's wrong and pay dearly. And so, Lord, I pray you'd strengthen the knees of weak-hearted people today. I pray you'd prepare some for moments of decision when they'll be asked to stand and name your name and that you'd give them strength, courage, and Great promises that they can hold to and cling to when fear assails them and they are tempted to deny you. So, Lord, for those moments when we ask ourselves, is following Jesus worth it? Create within us a resounding yes, it is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in junior high, I attended a number of basketball camps throughout the course of the summer. And there was one particular basketball camp that I went to, and it was in the middle of August. And about 150 or so of um, fellow junior hires from around the community were there. And it was a great uh, basketball camp experience. A part of that experience was hearing a motivational talk from one of the coaches every day. And I'll never forget what happened on one particular day. All of us were seated there underneath the, uh, the basket as the coach began doing his motivational talk. And essentially what he was trying to tell us was, that in order to be what you want to be, you have to make certain sacrifices and and make certain steps and be disciplined. That was the the gist of what he was trying to say. But as he began his introduction, he asked a bit of a rhetorical question. He asked it this way. So what do you want to be when you grow up? And then he began to name some career paths. Of course, with a basketball crew, he started with, anybody want to be in the NBA? And, of course, some kids raised their hand. He said, why don't you stand? If you want to play in the NBA, why don't you stand? So they stood, and, of course, we all knew they were never going to play in the NBA. And so they sat back down. And, and anyone, anyone want to be a doctor? A couple of kids stood, back down. Anyone want to be a lawyer? A couple stood. Anyone want to be a politician? A couple stood, down. And, and he got to the end, and then he, he just started to go on. But then he stopped. And I'm not sure why or what was going on inside of his head, but with a really sarcastic tone, he leaned in and he said, Anybody want to be a pastor? And he said it just like that. Now, immediately, I had a problem. Because as a junior high boy, I knew God wanted me to be a pastor. There was no doubt in my mind. God had put that call upon my heart. That's where I had my, my, my mind and my heart set towards that. And so immediately, there is a conflict raging within my soul. The man just said, does anybody want to be a pastor? And I know I do. And immediately, all the things that are running through my heart, the what-ifs, the scenarios, if I stand, what are they going to say? What's going to happen if I do this? Maybe I shouldn't. How can I not? And all this turmoil that's going on, and it's happening in milliseconds in my brain. But I knew. I have to stand. And so I stood. And he looked at me and said, really? 
said, you want to be a pastor? And I said, yes, sir. And then I sat down. The rest of the week was absolutely miserable. I became known as the preacher. That's what my nickname was throughout the whole camp. Hey, preacher, come here. Pass the ball. Preacher, preacher, come here. And, And it was very challenging. But my guess is that all of you, in some way, at some point in your life, know exactly what I'm talking about with the flood of emotions that come when you've got to decide, am I going to go public with this thing? Am I going to, like, really go out there and tell people that I'm a follower of Jesus? Or am I just going to be quiet again? And that little story as a junior hire has played out so many other times in my lifetime. Even now as an adult, when I'm meeting someone for the first time and they ask me, so what do you do for a living? There's almost this sense of, oh, you're going to regret asking me that. (laughs) And at the same time, as I begin to say, pastor, there is a flood of emotions that assaults my soul at that moment. What do they think of me? What will be the response? Will they back up? Will they turn away? Will they laugh? What will they do? And what I have found in my own spiritual journey, and I bet most of you have as well, is that every follower of Jesus faces defining moments in their life. Moments around a family dinner table with a bunch of relatives, maybe happened this Thanksgiving, with co-workers at work, maybe with um, your own spouse, with your children, where, where you have to put it on the line and say, I am a follower of Jesus, come what may. The question is, when that happens, what do you think in your head in order to help you Get up off of the floor and take your stand. When the flood of emotions begin to assault your soul and all of the what-if scenarios begin to attack you, what are the things that you need to think? What are the things that need to go through your soul to remind you that following Jesus is worth it? Well, fortunately, when Jesus commissioned his disciples in our text this morning, He had that kind of scenario on his mind and heart. Because as he's sending out his disciples, he gives them specific instructions about the trouble that they would face and also the trust that they would need to embrace. So he's sending them out, they're going to hit trouble, and therefore he tells them things that they need to trust in. And So this morning what I want to do is walk you through some principles that Jesus gave his disciples about how they are to minister in a hostile world and then also give you seven promises that I think we need to cling to when the moment of opportunity comes and we are called, do you believe in Jesus? And when that moment comes for us to say, yes, these promises help us to stand to our feet and say, I am a follower of him. So I hope this is helpful to you. I hope that for others of you, it will be preparation for you when your day comes, that you have to go big time public. So let's begin. First of all, principles for ministry in a hostile world. Chapter 10 and verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Rather, go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So Jesus sends them out. his disciples, with a charge. First, he tells them, go only to the lost sheep of Israel. Secondly, he tells them that they are to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 7, and and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Verse 8, heal the sick. Here's the third one. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. So the threefold charge that he gives them, go to the lost sheep of Israel, 
Proclaim the kingdom of heaven is at hand and heal diseases, relieve the suffering. Now, if you've been listening at all to Matthew, this should sound very familiar because this is exactly the kind of ministry that Jesus is having. Just last week, we looked at the fact that he went from from village to village, town to town, healing all manner of, of diseases and afflictions. As well, way back when Jesus began his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, he began by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So what Jesus is doing here is he's calling his disciples to have a ministry like he does. Now, the point is very simple. And I love it when there's a simple point in the scriptures that help me, yet the application of it is really broad. And the simple point is this is that Jesus is sending out his disciples to be like him. That's why they're called disciples. Their role is to be like him, to serve like him, to preach like him. And he sends them out in the midst of a hostile culture and says, be like me. And I love this because in the midst of all of the stuff that we load on what it means to be a Christian and all the stuff that we add to what it means to serve in Christian ministry, it's good to be reminded that at the end of the day, there's just one really simple goal that we need to hit, and it's this. Just be like Jesus. Just be like Jesus. Our little children, as they grow up, the passion of our hearts, what do we want for our kids? We just want them to be like Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm sending you out into a hostile world. Be like Jesus. Me. The second principle. He calls them to be gracious. Verse 8. The latter part of it. You receive without paying, give without payment. Acquire no gold nor silver nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no two tunics or sandals nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying you've received... Everything by my grace, and therefore give in such a way that it would give evidence that you understand that you've received everything. He reminds him, he reminds them that everything they have, everything they have came from him, and therefore as they serve, the result should be they should see life through a lens of graciousness. It's, it's, It doesn't make any sense for people who have received all sorts of grace to then be self-centered in how they view ministry. Any more than it does a child on Christmas morning being selfish when everything's been given to them. I don't know about you, but man, if my kids are selfish on Christmas morning, that really torques me. Because I'm like, everything here was given to you and you're going to be selfish? That's just not cool. So you pray for me on Christmas. (laughs) So Jesus wants us to see their, their gifting through a lens that everything they've been given has only been because of him. Graciousness or a willingness to give, or as we call it here at College Park Church, extravagant grace is the natural outcome of those who really understand the beauty of God's grace. In other words, if you've been transfixed by the beautiful reality of what it means to have been set free, to have been forgiven, that your debt has been paid, then graciousness and how you conduct yourself with other people and even the ministry that you do to others in terms of relieving their suffering and wanting to to be gracious to them and blessing them will be a part of the beautiful reality of who you are because you get it with God's grace. That's why pride is despicable to God. Now when I talk about this concept of graciousness, there's much more we could say there. I, I keep hearing in the back of my head, 
uh, the King James translation that I grew up with. And I also keep hearing in the back of my head this really bad-sounding hymn that our basketball team in the Philippines sang. So I've told you about my basketball trip uh, in the summer of 1989. Remember Orange Fanta? That was part of that experience. Remember that? And um, also part of it is that after we played our first half, we would then we would sing to the, the Filipino people, and we would invariably sing a hymn about this very subject. And here's the hymn, how it goes. Some of you may remember this. God forgave my sin in Jesus' name. I've been born again in Jesus' name. And in Jesus' name I come to you to share his love as he told me to. He said, freely, freely you have received. Freely, freely give. That's that text in the King James. It says, freely you have received. Freely give. Go in my name and because you believe, others will know that I live. So the idea is this. Those who understand they've been freely given of God's grace will have an orientation towards graciousness to others. And listen, if you are like this, especially in the next 31 days, and you are gracious and loving and beautifully kind to people, you will stick out like a sore thumb in our culture. Third, and this I think is probably the most important for me, and I hope very enlightening for some of you, because this next thing that I'm going to share with you, I am still working on, and it has taken me many years to get into my thick head. And it is this, that Jesus tells his disciples, so be like me and be gracious and then leave the results to me. Verse 14 begins a new theme that will emerge and will fully develop itself in verses 17 to 13, that Jesus and ministering in his name doesn't always fall on receptive hearts. The culture is not receptive to Jesus' ministry. And therefore, disciples, real disciples of his, who minister like him, should not be surprised or shocked when they face opposition. Instead, what they should do is leave the results of their ministry to God. Lay them at his feet. Be like Jesus, be gracious, and then lay it at Jesus' feet. Verse 14. If anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. That was a, a statement of a severing relationship. So they go, they serve, they're rejected. Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet and then move on. And then it takes another level. Verse 15, truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So he then talks about future judgment. Why does he talk this way? The reason he does is that Jesus knows that if their ministry resembles his that it's going to receive a significant level of opposition, and therefore he wants them to know that one day God is going to make everything right. In other words, there will come a day when God will judge the world. In the meantime, however, it is the disciples' role to just go into the world, a hostile world, declare the gospel, and leave the results, leave the judgment, leave the assessment to God. Thus he talks to them about judgment. City rejects you, shake your dust of your feet off and go to another one. And remember, it'll be more tolerable for them than for Sod- more, more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that city. Now, this is a really important thing to get in your mind. Effective ministry in a hostile culture requires understanding this principle. Because if you don't get this, 
If you just think, if I do the right things, it will result in the right outcomes. If I just be like Jesus and I'm gracious, people will welcome me with open arms. There'll be fruit, there'll be spiritual growth, people will suddenly turn their hearts and lives to Christ. If you do that, you will be horribly disappointed. You will quit, you'll throw in the towel, and you'll say it's not working. And and the fact of the matter is there's a, a natural tendency in us as human beings to connect our sense of the value of what we are doing based upon how people respond. So therefore, when opposition or resistance or rejection comes, oftentimes we can think, well, I must be doing something wrong. And what Jesus wants us to see is that we need to relieve our own hearts, of the burden of managing the results and instead leave the results to God. There's a balance here, because I'm not suggesting that you arrogantly minister in such a way that you never think about whether or not you're being effective, that you over-spiritualize people's constructive criticism or over-spiritualize their pushback when you've been either immature or ineffective. But there are two texts that we need to balance in life when we serve people, and they are these. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, and please don't make that your life verse. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, and as far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all men. So we have those two tensions. Live as peaceably as you can with everybody, but be sure that not everybody's always speaking well of you. So when I was praying about this this morning... And trying to think, how do, I, how do I get this in a real crystal clear summation? Here's what I came up with. It's, it's helpful for me. Maybe it'll be helpful for you. Here's what I would suggest. Don't let success go to your head or opposition get into your heart. Don't let success go to your head that you start thinking, look at what I'm doing. And when opposition comes, don't let it get into your heart. Look at what they're doing to me. There's a danger on both ends. To effectively follow Christ in a hostile culture means that you have to have a robust and biblical understanding that Jesus calls us to be like him, he calls us to be gracious like him, and then he says, leave the results to me. So we have to develop almost this freedom from results, a freedom from consequences, simply trusting it into the hands of a sovereign God. And this can be an incredibly liberating mindset to have. It can liberate a teenager when your friends mock you because of your beliefs or what you won't do. You can just simply say, you know what, God, I'm going to be like Jesus, I'm going to be gracious, and you take care of my friends. A bolt of lightning, poison in the water, something would work. (laughs) But you leave it to God. As a college student, when you spend a lonely Friday night because following Jesus won't allow you to go out with the crowd can liberate you when, as a parent, your children don't like your decisions and they emotionally distance themselves from you. When, as a person in the marketplace, when conversations around you about who you are and what your beliefs are attract subtle eye rolls or outright mocking from coworkers, Or maybe even just this last weekend, when your holiday is filled with awkward moments or outright conflict because of the radical difference between you and your family. At that moment, you've got a choice to make. Are you going to try and manage the outcomes, or are you just going to say, you know what, I'm going to be like Jesus, I'm going to be gracious, and I'm just going to let God take care of the rest? 
This is when you need to preach a very simple but powerful truth to your heart. And I cannot tell you how many times I have preached this to my weak, need heart. I say this, Mark, you're a follower of Jesus. It doesn't matter what they think. It doesn't matter. I live for the audience of one. Be like Jesus, be gracious, and let God take care of the rest. So those are the principles. Now let's look at the promises, particularly for sheep in the midst of wolves. Jesus, in verse 16, now takes it to another level. He's talked initially now about opposition, and now he's going to go even further in verses um, 16 to 33. He says this, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So he tells them, be wise and be innocent. Have, have, un, un, have unquestioning character. And also, be smart. Don't be foolish. But he acknowledges, I'm sending you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what's going to happen to sheep in the midst of wolves. Okay? They're going to get torn up. They're going to get beat up. They're going to get attacked. And the idea in the original language is that you are in the midst of wolves. Not that just you're being sent out into them. It is that we are in the midst of wolves. And Jesus, as though he's opening their eyes, saying, we are in trouble. We're in a hostile culture. And to help his disciples, when they're in the midst of a hostile culture, to help them when hard things happen, he offers a number of Beautiful promises tucked within this text that I like to think of as eclipsing hopes or eclipsing promises. And the reason I use the word eclipse, if you hang around me, you'll hear me use that word often. Because for me, it's, it's helpful because it doesn't deny that the opposition is there. It doesn't deny the reality of what's happening. It just means that something greater comes in my, my, in my view that eclipses the pain, the trauma, the difficulty of whatever is real. And I think the essence of following Jesus is constantly getting the eclipsing hope in front of the bad stuff of life. So you know all things work together for good to them who love God are called according to his purpose. You know that everything that happens, all pain, all difficulty, that there's an eclipsing hope. And what Jesus does here is he offers seven promises that I think serve as great eclipsing hope promises. You may not need to use all of them, but maybe one of them will just be like, you know what, that one today was for me. And with that, I can get up and say, I am a follower of his. At school, at college, around the dinner table today, hanging out with relatives this weekend, or maybe some other context. So the first promise is this. When challenged, remember, God will give you words to say. Verse 17. Beware of men, they will deliver you over to courts, flog you in the synagogues. Verse 18, they will drag you before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, verse 19, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. I love that. Because there have been hundreds of times in my lifetime when I have played out a conversation like this. Okay, now I'm going to come, I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say that. Then I'm going to say this, and then they're going to say this. And then I'm going to say that, and it never happens that way, right? It never does. In fact, I go home, and I'm like, ah, I didn't say it right. And then I think of all the things I could have said, and man, then the conversation goes beautifully. Oh, I should have said this, and that, and this, and that. 
they're not there anymore, so it doesn't matter. But I suddenly now think, oh, I should have said all of this. Well, what Jesus says here is a great and wonderful promise that when the anxiety of that moment comes in and you're thinking, well, what would, what would happen if I, if I take a stand for Christ? What happens if I say, you know, I don't see things that way? Or that's not what the Bible says. Or I disagree with that. Or, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. And then they say this, what am I going to say? For those moments, here is the promise, and it's a beautiful one. It says... In that hour, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. He promises that the Holy Spirit will speak through you. Now, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you've experienced this. You're in the middle of a conversation and it got really tense and really difficult and suddenly you just had the perfect word at the right moment and it was so clear. You just knew it was the Holy Spirit speaking through you. In fact, your spouse knew it because they got in the car and they're like, that was so good. That wasn't you. It was like the Spirit of God because you don't, you don't have smart thoughts like that. So and they, they, it's the Holy Spirit. And you know that crystal clear communication of the right word at the right moment that is a gift from the Holy Spirit. And so when those opportunities come, be like Nehemiah and offer a quick prayer. Help me, Lord, and then go. Ask the Lord, help me, Lord, right now. And he promises what? He promises that his followers will not be abandoned at critical moments. I love that. It's that the Holy Spirit will provide what followers need. Or Luke 21, 15 says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. I mean, the, 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 the mountain of this or the summit of this is when the word of God by the spirit comes through your mouth and your person who's contradicting you goes, what, 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 you know, it's like the Holy Spirit's right in the room at that moment because they don't know what to say. And Jesus promises that the spirit will help you. So when challenged and you get anxious, remember, God will give you words to say. Number two. This is one that's personal for some of you. When your family attacks, remember the value of endurance. Verse 21, it's a sad text. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. I mean, can you imagine? Here it is that the family unit has broken down so badly in culture that children are actually turning their parents in, and they're being put to death, and persecution hasn't come from outside of the family unit. Persecution has come from the inside of the family unit. Could there be anything more painful than to be betrayed and persecuted by your own flesh and blood? And what Jesus suggests here as a solution is the issue of endurance. Verse 22, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then he says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, this is very interesting to me. But why would Jesus talk about endurance as an encouragement when family has betrayed you? I think there's two reasons. The first is, is that Jesus is reminding us that endurance is part of what it means to be a disciple. The word is hupomone. It means to bear up under, to bear up courageously. It means that when you are a follower of Jesus, hard things are going to come. So if, if you're a new believer 
and you've received Christ as your Savior, I just, I have to tell you, you're entering into a hostile world, hard things are going to come. But it doesn't mean you're without hope, but it means you can't run away from hard things. By God's power, through His Spirit, and through His Son, you learn how to bear up under them. That freedom is not running away from your problem, it's finding the grace to endure them. Hupomone, bear up under the problem. And so I think one of the reasons that Jesus mentions endurance is he wants to remind his disciples that endurance is part of the deal of being a disciple of Jesus. You don't become a follower of Jesus just so you can know where you're going to go when you die. You become a follower of Jesus so you can be sheep in the midst of wolves, light in the midst of darkness. You are like him in a hostile world, and when hardship comes, you learn to endure. That's part of the calling. It's also, I think, secondly here, a reminder that everything has an end. Look at what it says. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. So what Jesus is talking about here is that there is an end to everything, including persecution by family members. And I think what he's saying here is there's a bigger outcome, there's a bigger end, there's a bigger goal in life than even having your mom, your dad, your sisters, your family think you're wonderful in terms of your belief in Jesus. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter because those who endure to the end will be saved and not by family but by Christ. Third, when persecution comes, remember that Jesus has been there too. Verse 23, the disciples are to go from town to town expecting persecution. It says, when, you, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There's a footnote in my manuscript about that. that Basically, that doesn't refer to his second coming, but I think rather refers to his coming after his resurrection, his appearances. But he promises them there's going to be persecution. Verse 24, then he says this, A disciple is not above his teacher, a servant not above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, he's saying here that his disciples are going to experience persecution, that Jesus experienced persecution, And so if they are a real follower of his, then they will experience persecution as well. So here's the problem that some people have. Some people just want to receive Jesus as their Savior, and then they want to go incognito until they die. They want to be a closet Christian. Closet Christians are counterfeit Christians. To be a follower of Jesus means that you go public and say, I am a follower of Christ. That's why baptism is so often linked to one's profession of faith. Because in baptism, you go public and say, as Jesus was dead and was, was, was buried and was raised from the dead, so I am now dead, buried, and raised with Jesus. I belong to him. As he was fully in the grave, I am fully now in Christ. I am plunged in him. And so to be a follower of his means that you've gone public, that people know you're a follower of his. So it would not be good if I met somebody at your office and I said, oh, I know so-and-so, they work at that office too, and they go to my church. And to have them say, they go to church? Wow, that's not a good thing for you or me, especially for you when I find you. So what Jesus is saying here is that to be liked by people 
affirmation from others, to be affirmed by the world, is not the calling of the disciples of Christ. Sometimes I get really nervous when I hear the church, I'm sorry, big church, evangelical church, wanting the approval of the press, wanting the approval of the academics, wanting the approval of the world, want the world to look at us and say, wow, what you guys are doing is really great, because I don't see the world saying that of Jesus. I see them confused and mystified and at times opposing. And sometimes I wonder, what does it say about us that the opposition against us is so little and so minute? And does it say anything about whether or not we really follow Jesus? When persecution comes, remember that Jesus has been there too. It's a validation that I'm in the world, but not of the world. Number four, when you're afraid of people, remember one day everything will be revealed. Now here we find the subject of the fear of man, which is a very powerful emotion. And Lord willing, in August, I'm going to do our relationship series on the subject of the fear of man. Because opposition doesn't need to be active or specific in order for it to grab a hold of your heart. Just anticipating somebody being upset with you or anticipating what they think of you is enough to lock some of us up emotionally and spiritually. Which is why Proverbs says that the fear of man is a snare. Just, what are they going to say? If they say this, then they'll do this. And Well, then they'll think this of me. And that fear of man will hold you in bondage. And you need to cut the cords of that thing and say, you know what? When I'm afraid of people, here's what I need to remember. Verse 26. Jesus says, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What is he saying? He's saying that one day everything that's hidden or covered will be revealed. God sees it all. He knows it all. He will make everything plain. All motives, all words, all actions of everyone who's ever opposed the followers of Jesus will be made plain and clear that judgment and vindication is guaranteed. In other words, what are you afraid of? Jesus is going to fix it in the end anyways. So you cut the chains of the fear of man loose by saying, it doesn't matter what they think of me, it only matters what you think of me, and one day it will all be clear. Fifth, verse 27, when tempted to be timid, when tempted to be timid, remember that eternity is on the line. Verse 27, he says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. So that's what they're supposed to do. They're they're supposed to be about a proclaiming ministry. They're to take the message of the gospel and they are to declare it openly. That timidity ought not to be their norm. And Jesus wants bold messengers for a bold message. And then he says this. Verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This is a tough statement. Jesus is not here suggesting that you're motivated out of fear of God. But rather what he's saying here, I think, is that when you start to get focused on people and you get timid, you're basically placing your stake and claim with humans who are finite and not with a God who's infinite. You're trading the temporary for the eternal. 
You're living for a kingdom that's here and now. You'd rather be quiet now without telling them about the really important stuff that relates to eternity. And so what Jesus is saying is when there's a temptation to be concerned about what other people can do or what they can take away or punishment that they could somehow produce on you, Jesus wants his disciples to keep in mind that there are eternal issues at stake. So then their view of life as disciples, our our sense of fear, what motivates us for boldness is to be different because of what is at stake. So he reminds us, look, when you are tempted to be timid, remember, eternity is on the line. There are people in your office, in your neighborhood, around a table, who their beliefs are going to set them in judgment against God. God is going to be against them, and eternity is on the line. So don't be timid when these issues are so significant. Number six, when you are filled with anxiety, remember you're valuable to God. So moments of opposition can create a high degree of anxiety, a sense of worry about the future. And what happens in that moment is we might be tempted to doubt God's care or to be fearful about what would happen. And in some respects, I would tell you it's normal and not even sinful to have a natural instinct or a thought about what would happen if I did this. But here's when it becomes a problem. When anxiety begins to control your thought or begins to dictate your behavior, you need new beliefs, conquering beliefs, eclipsing beliefs that then kick in. And what are those eclipsing beliefs? Well, here's what Jesus says, verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. What does he do? He does the same thing that he did in the Sermon on the Mount. He points us to a small creature, like a little sparrow, And he says, God cares for the smallest little creatures. He he knows all of them by name. The one that got torqued on your windshield. He knew the name of that one. The little one that had a nest in your, in your, your little bush and that was gone. You can't find. He knows the name of that one. And God cares for every single little creature. In fact, he even goes further and says that God has numbered every hair on your head. Now for some of us, that's a lot easier than for others. In fact, I had somebody after the first service tell me, do you know how many hairs that is? I said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I was reading this passage a little bit ago, so I did some figuring. He said, there, he, he Googled hairs on head, and apparently there's like 110,000 hairs on the average person's head. And then he figured out there's like 6.5 billion people. So every day, God has to manage 715 trillion hairs in the world. That's a lot of hair to manage, isn't it? And then then he figured out like how many people have been born since the beginning of time. It's an estimation, and it was some number that just completely fried his iPod. So um, the the fact of the matter is is that God is, is micro in our lives, and he knows us by name, and his care for us is is described even in the most intricate details. And so you never need to wonder, does God know what's going on? Does God know what this feels like? You ever have that thought? You ever think, do you know, did you hear what they just said? Of course God does. And this passage is a good reminder that God's on it and he cares. The text tells us that he loves us greatly. He says, you are more value than sparrows. So how do we battle anxiety? 
not by denying the situation at hand or saying it's not a big deal. That doesn't work. You battle anxiety with an eclipsing belief, namely that God cares for me, that he loves me, and he has promised me he will never abandon me and will always meet my needs. And the final one is this. When following Jesus is costly, remember, there is nothing greater than the affirmation of Jesus. Here we come to, my friends, the gospel. It's in here. It's the final capstone of all the promises. Jesus tells us that there is a direct connection between our acknowledgement of him and his acknowledgement of us. In other words, denial of Jesus means a denial of us. But an affirmation of Jesus means an affirmation of us. Here's what it says. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. You read that again. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. So here's the question. Why is the affirmation of Jesus listed as such a big-time motivator? And how is this the gospel? Let me tell you why. The reason that his affirmation is so important is that it's directly tied to your eternal destiny. The Bible tells us that we're sinful people. And if you were to stand before God as a sinful person in the presence of a holy and righteous God, and you were to stand before this holy God in your sin, the event of your meeting God would immediately result in an utter compulsion for you to flee from the presence of a holy God because He is bright and clear and holy and righteous and you are everything but that. And in that moment of your sin and in His holiness, your judgment and your sinfulness and your deserving of eternal damnation in hell will be so clear and obvious. No one will need to tell you. You will know what you are and what I am is a problem. And the only hope in that moment for a sinful creature in the presence of a holy God is for an advocate to come and say, no, this one I have taken and he belongs to me. This one I have covered. This one I have forgiven. This one I have cleansed. This one I have made righteous. So the affirmation of Jesus is no, not just I like this one. This affirmation of Jesus means, holy father, this sinful creature belongs to me. I paid for his sins. I cleansed him of his debt. He is now a son of yours. I affirm him. He is a son of God. If Jesus doesn't affirm you, if he says, I don't know this one, then you are unforgiven, you are guilty, and you are damned. But for Jesus to say, he's one of mine, is the most glorious thing in the world. It's not the difference between the A team and the B team. No. No, the difference is between life and death, heaven and hell, eternal joy and everlasting punishment. And so he says, when things get tough, remember, there is nothing greater than the affirmation of Jesus. To have him say, Mark, you belong to me, there is nothing greater than that. So when things get tough, and you're called to name the name of Christ, and you're called to take a stand and say, I am a follower of Jesus, and you wonder, what can get me off of my seat and stand to my feet and say, I belong to Him. Let it be that the affirmation of Jesus over you is the essence of all of what it means for you to live, and without that, you have nothing left. 
You've got nothing without that. That is everything. So to affirm Him means that in the process of you affirming Him, you're giving evidence that you belong to Him, and that is the at everything that matters in life. The Apostle John, in the sixth chapter of his Gospel, records a remarkable conversation between Jesus and Peter. After a bunch of disciples left, Jesus turned to Peter and asked him in an intimate moment, Are you going to leave too? And Peter said to him something that I just hope gets in our hearts today. I pray this would be your response and my response. His response to Jesus was this, Lord, where are we going to go? You have the words of life. Where are we going to go? What else are we going to do? Deny him? How could I? What do I have left if I say I'm not a follower of his? i got no purpose, no meaning, no hope, no future, no forgiveness. Without Jesus, I've got nothing. So when it really gets tough and the pressure gets on and you have to hupomone underneath the trial that you're in, preach this truth to your heart. If I don't have Jesus, I don't have anything. So when following him proves costly, tell your heart, heart, it is worth it because there is no one like him, no one more glorious than him, no one more exalted than him, and without him, I've got nothing. So therefore, I say, I am a follower of him because he is everything, everything to me. And so, Lord Jesus, let our confession today be, you are everything. Lord, we live in a hostile world, and at times it feels like it's becoming more hostile all the time. And it may be that more than ever we need to recommit our hearts to these truths because in small and large ways you may be asking some even now to take a a new and costly stand. Lord, to speak truth to family members, to share what you're doing inside of our hearts, to stake our claim with you, Lord Jesus, embarrassingly so sometimes is really, really hard. And we acknowledge that there are moments when we would rather be silent. We'd rather have the affirmation of people than your approval. And yet without you, Lord Jesus, we have nothing. So I pray for my brothers and sisters today, Lord, who are under a vice, under a under a challenge, under opposition, that today they would feel strength within their spiritual legs. They would feel power within their hearts that they can endure to the end. They will not relent. They will not turn. They will not deny. They will stay in the fight because there's nothing more glorious, nothing more powerful than this Christ who's transformed their lives. Lord, I imagine that today may be a preparation for some who have opposition waiting for them today or next week. And I pray that this message would come back and they would say, I must have Christ. College Park, as you're just in a quiet moment of reflection as we end, our our prayer team will be up here afterwards. And 
if you need someone to pray for you, maybe one of those promises you would say, you know, I, this is what I need you to pray for me. I had a person come up to me afterwards and said, I'm, I'm in a particular field and I feel like I'm the only believer in this field. I'm all alone and I just needed to be reminded that the fight is worth it. That's what you may need someone to do is to pray over you. I prayed with another pastor this morning whose heart's breaking because the opposition has begun to get inside of his heart. And you may just need some folks to come around you and just say, keep trusting in the promises of God. So they're here. If you need to receive Christ today because you've never bent your knee to Jesus, not believed His promise in the first place that you're a sinner and you need a Savior, then we'd love to share with you how you can know Christ today. And so, Lord Jesus, be honored. We are a weak people, but we have a strong God. We have a sure word, the powerful presence of the Spirit. Help us to trust in your promises, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I love you. Thanks for coming today. God bless you.